Understanding the statistics of intimate partner violence is complicated. Underreporting, for example, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that only 20% of intimate partner rapes or sexual assaults and 25% of physical assaults are ever reported. And differing definitions of what constitutes intimate partner violence contribute to an elusive depiction of this undeniably significant problem. Equally complicated is the determination of the role of healthcare providers in this problem. It is clear that there are health consequences to intimate partner violence, but when and how do healthcare providers intervene to prevent and treat those affected by intimate partner violence? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM Channel 233. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Kansas City, Missouri, is my guest, Dr. Denise Dowd. She is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and Chief of the Section of Injury Prevention of the Division of Emergency Medicine at the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Dr. Dowd splits her time between clinical duties in the emergency department and research advocacy and program development in injury prevention for the hospital. Uh, Dr. Dowd, can you give us a picture of what the best statistics that are available um, tell us about intimate partner violence in the U.S.? I think the best statistics that are available are those that are published by the um, Justice Department. And the Justice Department's latest statistics, which are for 2004, of course there's always some lag in official statistics, indicate that each year in the United States there are approximately 625,000 victimizations. That is the latest for 2004. These latest statistics were actually recently released and came with the indication that there has been a significant drop in intimate partner violence since about 1993, and that was really the interesting finding of late. What are the resulting physical and psychological consequences of intimate partner violence? Understanding that my clinical practice is with children, and so that is my frame, which is a pediatric frame. I don't know if you want me to speak to that, but for women, of course, it's a range of physical, emotional, and other consequences. I mean, we see in the emergency department um, defensive injuries that may or may not be interpreted as the result of victimization. Of course, the typical thing is the black eye, but there can be other things as well that you don't uh, recognize, bruising around the neck. And then, of course, a huge, huge part of depression and lack of functioning uh, and other emotional things are a result of uh, intimate partner violence. For kids, that is highly dependent on what their age both chronologically is and developmentally is as to what we see. You know, we see kids up to about 18 years of age here, and kids, you know, the most obvious thing are physical problems uh, which kids have, physical injuries of getting caught in the crossfire, which is not uncommon. The woman who's holding the baby that's pushed down the stairs, the child who is being held when um, a partner um, strikes another partner, Um, Children, unfortunately, are used as shields. Um, And those things become um, pretty obvious. Um, Oftentimes, the histories that accompany these cases are falsified. They'll say that uh, something else caused the child's injury. More subtle for us and important for us in the pediatric setting are sort of those chronic things that we don't have a good solution to. And abdominal pain is one of those things. I'm sure there are many of your listeners that treat children with chronic abdominal pain. They can't find any one particular organic reason for it, and they undergo large workups. Well, and in fact, if you delve deeper in that, a lot of this can be stress reactions from living in a home with violence. Those kids are typically middle school age to young adolescent kids. Headaches would fall in that same category. Mm-hmm. Infants can become um, irritable. 
Um, there's a lot of attachment disorders between abused mothers and their infants. Um, teenagers or older kids can, you know, you see the typical thing, it's either outward or inwardly directed. So if it's internalized, they'll internalize and have anxiety uh, and depression. There'll be failure in school. More externalized symptoms are acting out truancy peer-to-peer violence. You were mentioning how children can be affected by intimate partner violence by being in the way or just witnessing it, but these children are also at greater risk for being abused themselves. Oh, absolutely. You know, it has been said that domestic violence or intimate partner violence is the the leading precursor to child abuse. That actually has been said. Um, Estimates for the concordance between intimate partner violence and child abuse um, range from about 50% to about 75%. Mm -hmm. Clearly, there is a direct connection when physical violence is used in the home. In addition to that, the more subtle thing, which is in the child maltreatment category, is neglect. If a, a mother, for instance, is the primary care provider for her kid and she is being abused, this really limits her her emotional and her physical ability to provide what she needs to provide for that child. So although it's not a physical mark, it certainly is a form of maltreatment. Certainly. In one of your research articles published in the journal Pediatrics, you looked at the role of healthcare providers in a pediatric emergency department in dealing with intimate partner violence. You point out that those working in a pediatric setting are in an ideal position to identify, diagnose, and uh, treat, maybe even prevent some forms of domestic violence. That is something that I feel very strongly about and really was um, when you think about the settings for screening, you know, it's been recommended um, across the board by professional organizations, both pediatric and adult sort of oriented organizations, that there be universal screening. Well, Any pediatrician knows that uh, it takes a healthy parent to raise a healthy child in both a physical and an emotional way. One study that was done a few years ago by Martin and others, it was published in JAMA, and what they did was they followed pregnant women through their pregnancy and then afterwards to sort of look at their utilization of health care. And abused women almost 100% of the time will seek medical care for their children, but they will not seek it for themselves. And so in the push to screen in medical settings, if you think about it, the pediatric setting actually makes the most sense to capitalize on the potential for identifying women if women are not even showing up for medical care in adult settings. Physicians really are in a position to help these women when they bring their children in. Let's talk about training for physicians. What type of training do physicians typically receive regarding screening for child abuse and other forms of family violence? Well, you know, at the level of the the trainee, the medical student or the resident, unfortunately, there's not a lot of mandatory curriculums in intimate partner violence. It's really spotty. There is really no standard for that. And your listeners can kind of recall what they have, how they have been trained. You might get, uh, we surveyed folks here as well as in other states, you you might get um, an hour lecture perhaps if there's an interested faculty member, somebody that's really sort of carrying the torch for this. But oftentimes it's not integrated within the medical curriculum. Now, that said, Joint Commission, if you're a hospital-based physician, is really, you know, they're really pushing for universal screening, and that is becoming part of what they review when they review um, hospitals uh, every year. So in, in institutions um, that, that really pay attention to that, which is most hospitals, I think you're getting more of a push to educate um, staff physicians in that. There are a number of online curriculum that are, that are pretty good as well. But unfortunately, it's not as good as it could be.
And screening is complicated. What are? Let's talk about some of the barriers to screening for intimate partner violence. You have barriers that originate from three different spheres. There's barriers that originate from the patient, barriers that originate from the healthcare provider, and barriers that originate from the system. So starting with the patient, there may be reluctance on the part to disclose intimate partner violence because the statistics bear this out as well as any anecdote from a victim is that the time of greatest risk for a woman who discloses is actually after that disclosure. Mm -hmm. If the perpetrator finds out about that disclosure, there is actual real risk of serious injury or death. That's one. It depends where you are in the country, what your cultural group you're dealing with. Um, People may view it as an entirely private issue, a completely family business. It's not a stranger's visit, and they do put physicians in the stranger category. So that's one of the things. And this doesn't even speak to the special issues that if you have a child present, and that's the pediatric setting, what are some of the barriers there? Well, the woman who presents, we found this out with focus groups, some of their concerns are is that the child, if it's an acute care setting, my kid is sick, and the priority here is for my child to be seen and treated. So timing within that visit becomes incredibly important. Taking care of the priority of the child while being able to fit screening in does take a little bit of finessing. System factors are also important. Busy offices, and and I'm sure all of your listeners can relate to that, the push to see more patients in a shorter period of time is very great. And figuring out a way to do this, quote-unquote, extra work of screening, you have to be pretty clever about figuring out how to do that. So just the sheer volume of patients as well as the work that's expected is difficult. Another barrier that will come in the system arena would be that um, many times in healthcare settings, if you screen a person and you get a positive answer, the question then becomes, well, what do I do about it? And if you don't have established relationships with advocates in the community, and commonly this will come out of women's shelters, then and have a concrete ability to respond to a positive screen, then you're left with, was this really any kind of justice that was done if I just get a positive screen and yet I don't have an immediate response? Because when a woman responds yes, she may be telling you at this time because it has come to such an acute situation in her home that she feels danger, and quite literally she needs to go into shelter at that time. So sort of this window of opportunity opens up and you have to be able to react and provide those resources immediately. Right. So so what can you concretely recommend to those healthcare workers who are willing to go there, who are willing to do the screening, but no, they need to be prepared once they get the answers? Right. You know, the Institute of Medicine uh, sort of put it out there that physicians should have what's called a basic level of competency, um, meaning that all you need to do is, number one, screen, and number two, connect women with resources. The first thing is, is don't worry about you don't have to solve the problem, okay? You have to connect a person with resources. So think of it in a very streamlined way. Concretely, what you can do is to, what we've done in our community, is build up a health care-based advocacy system, all right? It's called, we call it the bridge program here. It's, It's been going on for a number of years. The women's advocacy community that you find with domestic violence shelters in that are very interested in figuring out ways of delivering their services where they're most needed. And so relationships, building relationships between um, your practice, your hospital, your emergency department, your office, and women's shelters, you can find out ways to do rapid response by putting in a a phone number uh, for rapid response. Um, But you'll find, physicians will find that these 
organizations are very willing to help. That's what they do. So finding those community resources and being willing to do the screening and then send the patients to those community resources. Right. It's just connecting the women with those resources. For instance, in our emergency department, all we do is is we screen. If that screen is positive, we offer advocacy services. That person comes in person to the emergency department 24-7. Most of the time, People actually don't want to see a person at that time, but they want the number to be able to, on their own terms and in their own time, contact that organization so that they can get help. But they need to know that it's out there. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for today's medical professional. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Denise Dowd. She is professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and chief of the section of injury prevention at the Division of Emergency Medicine at the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.